Almighty Father, on this Eastertide Sunday, just swell up in our hearts and in our minds the reality of your resurrection in our lives. Our hope, our foundation, the thing that uh, encourages us to be cruciform, the power of your resurrection carry that along with us as we study your word and center around uh, the things that you center around. Speak to uh, this church today in ways that you've been speaking to people for thousands of years. We just line up with them and say, here we are, Lord. Amen. A couple people, get, we, we had somebody get baptized in the first service. It's very exciting. Anybody still would like to get baptized today? Um, we have in the Connection Center people to help you out with that. People have been giving their blood all morning too. I know Jeremiah already said it, but we have some good blood at this church. The hospital knows it. Out of the vein. So feel free. You can still do There's still time to do that if you feel so compelled. My name is Dan. Dan, Mike, um, if you're new, and I'd like to invite you to consider the gospel this morning as we look to the, to the scriptures together in, in John chapter 20. If you have a Bible, please feel free to turn to John chapter 20. We, as a community, have been studying John for over a year now, and uh, this will be the second to last time we look at it, uh, for a while at least, and let me just say it has been such a fantastic study. Um, I've learned a lot, and... This will be my final contribution to that whole process, and Rod is going to share next week on 21. And so I'd like to read to you from 20, starting in verse 19, right where we left off last week, where Mary encounters this stranger in the garden, and really it's Jesus, this first interaction with the resurrected Lord, and, and the word, just the word that came from his mouth, her her name caused her to feel so sure in her identity and their relationship with who they were. What a fantastic story. And I look fondly on last week. I thought that was a really great week. Um, I just want to pick up from there. Verse 19 of chapter 20. If you'll stand with me for this reading. Before I just ramble on and on. <laughs> you got to give people time to turn there, okay? So it's just what I do. John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that very Sunday, on the evening of the first day of the week where the disciples were together, the doors were shut. Some, some translations have they're locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And just as he said in chapter 16, when you see me, remember, your tears of grief will turn into joy. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. 
Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hands into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. See my hands. Reach out your hands and put it into my side. Stop your unbelief and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you believe? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so believing in him, you will have life in his name. Amen. You may have a seat. really hot. I got this lid on. It keeps the heat for a really long time. Sorry about that. I have no feeling in my mouth now for the rest of my life. Oh. Everybody's staring at you, Dan. Sorry. Okay, some preliminary remarks that I'd like to share with you about the final verse there in chapter 20. These things were written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, and in believing in them, you might have life in his name. The two words that jump out to me in that verse that I'd like to just sort of put before you and cut into them surgically, the words life and believe, they're connected here. This is where John finally plays his card. This is the point of why I've written all of these things. And just think about this whole story. In the beginning was the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the water to wine, the, the temple, uh, Nicodemus, and the woman at the well, and the, 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 the royal official's son, the 5,000 people who were hungry, the blind man. I mean, think of all the I am statements. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread. I am the water. I'm the shepherd. Think about this whole upper room narrative that, that we got privy to, to, to read and to, to see. And finally, even beholding the man as he was on the cross. All of these things. And here now, eyewitnesses to resurrection. John says, I want you to see this, to read this, and to encourage you to believe. Because in believing you will have life. Well, what does that word life mean? You can think back to chapter one. Rod did an amazing message on this. Chapter one, verse two, in him was life. And I remember him talking about that because he said in Greek, there's two words for life. One, just a general being that's living and surviving and breathing. And then the other word, which is used here, thriving. Fully alive, having something in your soul that is uh, living the life that you are meant to live. 
flourishing. It's something that is resilient and something that is not just found in physical circumstances changing, but actually in the midst of physical circumstances changing still remains. This is what's up for grabs at the end of this message is what I refer to in John as the soft close of John. There's a whole other chapter here. It sounds like he's kind of wrapping up. It's like the plane has um, hit his final descent, you know, to land here. He wants us to see that there's something uh, at stake here, and it's actually having the life that God uh, wants you to live. And it's directly related to belief. So we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to believe? Or at least what does John think belief is? As I was thinking about it this week, in our world, belief has really transformed into something that John didn't really intend it. He doesn't use it the same way we do. We can use this word belief in, in an abstract way. I mean, to believe in general in something, but have it really not affect our lives at all. I mean, I'm sure you've heard people believing that the world is flat. Yet, it doesn't really change much about the way they live. They still, I'm, I'm sure, drive around in cars and planes and all that stuff, but it's just a belief that some people have. Now, I'm not saying this is the only way we use belief. I'm just illustrating you can believe something and it not really affect your life at all. This is not what John had in mind. John actually never uses the word belief in a noun form. He uses it as a verb. It's kind of like if I was to say to you, do you believe in the resurrection? And you could say, sure. But John would probably say, how do you believe in the resurrection? In what way does that belief affect your life? Actually, William Mounts, you might recognize the name. He's a New Testament Greek scholar. He defines this word belief as to put one's faith in, to trust in, with the assumption that actions will follow. To put one's faith in, to trust in, with the assumption that action will follow. It's a belief that causes some sort of action. I think this is important, not only just because it's connected to the word life here, it's because John, as you go back and look at this word that he uses, if you think I'm making a mountain out of a molehill, he uses it 98 times throughout the, the, the letter that we've read so far. As a matter of fact, nobody in the New Testament uses this word more than he does. It's his word. And it's implying a belief that causes you to do something. Now, I like to use this analogy in, in, to sort of flesh this out. Imagine you're in jail, and I come by the window, and I say to you, hey, great news. Just heard. Your sentence, your, everything has been deleted. You're allowed to get up and walk out of this prison cell. You just, they're going to buzz you out. You just have to go up to that door, and you just, they'll, it'll open. You could say, I believe you, and not Walk out and just say, but I'm comfortable living right here. I'm just going to stay right where I am. I don't know. Thanks for the news. And I think a lot of us have been listening to the gospel of being set free for our entire lives, but it just sometimes feels like 
just really easy to, to not walk, take a step in faith, and move out of that prison cell. You are free. And you're free to go out of the prison cell and live the life that you were always intended to live, a life of freedom and flourishing. But you have to take the step in faith to go pursue that. Keep these things in mind as we kind of uh, rehash through this last story here in chapter 20. Because John wants to, I think, give us some direction for how this belief works in our life, for how these people who were inspired by the resurrected Christ moved after this. He also, I think, wraps up some questions lingering about belief and, and how that works as we look at Thomas as well. So let's start at the beginning, verse 19. The disciples are in a room. The doors are shut, maybe even locked. And they're in there because they're afraid of the temple authority, or the, the Judeans. This is how the people that Rod described as this ruling class, this very wealthy group. Uh, even some mafia vibes, you know, would be appropriate to see this this is, this is who they're hiding from. Probably amplified, to just keep the timeline straight here, is that they probably had a safer day because of the previous day being Saturday, a high Sabbath. They weren't necessarily being pursued, probably. And now on Sunday, which is their Monday, they, are, they need to really hide and they need to really figure out, are we gonna be crucified or are we gonna be pursued because we are one degree away from this guy. One degree away from the person who just was brutally crucified this weekend. And so they have this fear. They're in this room. And this is not what I would define as flourishing in any means. Jesus could have done a lot of things this day. I know there's a lot of question marks for what he did this week. And he kind of pieced stuff together, looking at Mark and Luke and Matthew and all that. Um, but the resurrected Christ takes the time to go and meet these guys where they're afraid. Now, this is, part, this is the part of the message where I get all scientific and talk about physics of how Jesus' resurrected body was able to do things. Um, but I'm not really good at physics. And I don't really know if John wants us to be thinking about that stuff. I mean, he does say the doors were locked and Jesus appeared there. That's about as as scientific as I can get with it. I don't know. There are other stories where Jesus disappears and where things like that happen. I think that's fantastic. Uh, but I don't know if John wants us to really get weighed down in the details here. And I don't want to miss the main point. These guys were afraid. And it's, it's tempting in fear to isolate. It's tempting when there's something intimidating out there uh, where, where we are confronted with for to, to, to lock ourselves away or lock that portion of ourselves away. Put that in, in its own place. It's manageable and I can, uh, I can control that. They're doing something that a lot of us are tempted to do. And what the first thing that they know about who the resurrected Christ wants to be is somebody who enters into that place of fear and speaks a word of peace. John doesn't depict Jesus here as 
outside summoning them out. He doesn't depict this maybe as a multi-level you know, room here. As Jesus appeared above them, looking down on them, and now it's going to be the time where he sort of rebukes them for, for hiding here. You, you know, oh, ye of little faith. John depicts the resurrected Christ as standing right in their midst. He appears to stand right with them and speaks this word of peace to these guys who are afraid. Have you received the word of peace that came from Jesus that he will speak to you in your place of fear? Think about it. What is a place where you right now are like, I don't, I don't know. I'm not willing to get to give that, to open that up to Jesus. I'm not willing to, I'm still afraid to act this way. I'm still afraid to give this up. I'm still afraid to uh, trust God with this. Invite Jesus into that place and ask him to, to speak to you there because he will speak peace. And it's not a, an arbitrary peace. It's not a wishful thinking peace. This peace was purchased by his blood as a victor over death. He is able to say, I, I pronounce this peace over you. It's a peace that comes from the same mouth that through his word, the universe is upheld. The Prince of Peace. As we are Christians living in light of the resurrection, I don't think God, I don't think Christ wants you to have, I don't think Christ wants your lifestyle to be one where you are locked away in fear. He wants you to believe in him. And in him have life flourishing. Something that's unexplainable to the world. Something that's attached to resurrection. Have you received the word of peace from our Messiah? He speaks to them peace. Because peace is the place where we stand when we then start to build our, on our commission. Notice what he does next. He starts to give them a commission, a calling, to tell them what he wants them to do and be like. You might have noticed in Matthew 28, there's a very famous section there that's called the Great Commission. Um, just as a side note, the word the Great Commission is not a Bible verse. It's just a title that's very popular for that part in Matthew 28. Um, but each of the Gospels have their own Great Commission type scenario where Jesus is telling them whatever he's gonna tell them before he leaves. And so if you, if you were to put the Great Commission in John, I think this would be a great verse for it. Peace be on, unto you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Well, what does this verse mean? Why is there breathing happening after this? And what does that have to do with forgiveness? Well, this is the Great Commission of John. As I tried to bring up a couple weeks ago, uh, the commission of mankind was to be the image bearers of God. You see that in the very beginning of the Bible. There's a responsibility bestowed upon mankind to, to be the image, to, to display and to show who God is by having this relationship with God of delight and enjoyment and adoration. The problem is, we, we're okay still saying, hey, this guy's made in the image of God, which is always true. But what happens when the image gets marred or tainted or confused? 
What happens when image bearers decide not to reflect God, but to reflect the idol that they love, that they adore, or that we love and we adore? We start to show not God, some other God. And so when Jesus came into this world, which I'm just reiterating what I said two weeks ago, he actually, part of that incarnation, part of me, him being sent into the world is to display what man never did, to display a perfect image of God. The reason why I say that is because if you think this verse means, as I was sent, just means to die for the sins of the world, how, how could so I send you make sense? I'm not sending you to die for the sins of the world. I mean, that's already done. I'm sending you as I was sent because a part of his being sent is to represent who God was, to show the world finally a picture of, of who God actually is, which is why he can say things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When I speak, I speak on the Father's behalf. I'm representing him. And this is also why he says, okay, as I have been sent, I'm redoing the image, and now I want you to be my image. I want you to show God as you mimic, as you reflect me into this world, I am sending you. And just as the final act of creating Adam in the first place, after he was formed, Genesis 2 tells us that God breathed his life-giving spirit into Adam, we have the same a similar looking thing here where as at this moment where the commissioning is happening for this representation, Jesus breathes his life-giving spirit into his image, into his representative. He then articulates in words kind of what this is gonna look like when he says, and you have the authority to forgive sins. Now, tip, okay, so first of all, don't get hung up on the second half of this line. At least this is my opinion. In my studies of Semitic languages and how this works, there's often a negative um, half of the, of, of the sentence to emphasize the, the, a full comprehension of the message here. So um, I don't want to get in the weeds of this, but have you ever heard Jacob, I loved, Esau, I hated? It's not about Esau. It's to emphasize the love of Jacob. Or in Matthew, have you ever, what you shall bind will be bound and what you shall lose will be loose. I've given you the keys to the kingdom. He's saying, I'm giving you full authority. It's, it's a, you are giving full permission to be able to speak on my behalf a word of forgiveness, which is great. Because normally, you're not allowed to forgive something that was done against somebody else. I mean, if you came up to me and said, I'm really estranged from my dad, he and I had a big blowout six months ago. I haven't talked to him ever since. I can't just say, my, your sins are forgiven. I mean, he, your, your father forgives you. I mean, come on. That would be kind of a low blow if I ever ran into your dad. And he's like, no, actually, I still have a bone to pick about that. It would matter if your dad said to me, you have full permission to tell, if you ever see my son or you see my daughter, you have full permission to tell them, I've forgiven them, I've let it go, it's fine, no debt, come home. This is our commission, this is our, this is the word that you have to speak 
over yourself and over the people that are around you. The question is, have you received this as your call? Have you received the message that you have full permission to go out to the world and use your imagination as you interact with people who might not know, is God mad at me? Is he angry? Is there something that I, ha that I have to do in order to get him to love me? You have full permission to speak on his behalf as his representative to say to him, your sins are forgiven. The devil has a great commission for you too. And it's an easy one to participate in. What the devil wants you to do is to not pick up the keys of the kingdom. He wants you to pick up a hammer and nail and nail people to the cross. It's easy to do. I did it in the bathroom earlier today. This guy forgot to flush the toilet and I'm already getting all judgy about it. <laughs> and I caught myself and I thought, call me radical, but I'm gonna flush that for him because his sins are forgiven. And I wanna, <laughs> I wanna tell him, I wanna show it. <laughs> Not the greatest example, but <laughs> practically we have this mission, this ministry. It's not easy to tell yourself you're forgiven. It's easy to nail yourself back up to the cross. A lot of us have been doing it when we look in the mirror for many years. A lot of us have been doing it when we look at our enemy, when we look at somebody who disagrees with us, when we look at somebody who has wronged us. It's easy to start getting out that hammer and nail and start <laughs> pounding away and trying to tell people they gotta pay for this. But look at what Jesus does in this moment by showing them his hands and showing them the scars and saying, this has is, this is already been paid for. Pick up the keys. Put down the nail. Pick up the keys of the kingdom and start going around and unlocking people's prison cells. Start proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor and set captives free. Pick up the keys and start to go out into your world and, and communicate to people that you see on a daily basis that there's freedom and there's life for them to have. You have full permission to speak the word of forgiveness. That was, that the Holy Spirit's empowering you to do as you represent Christ in this world. I have one more thought on Thomas. Because Thomas was in a traffic jam that day. He wasn't able to be there. I don't know where Thomas was. Maybe he was one of the guys that went to a mess. I don't know. He, uh, he wasn't there. Can you imagine 10 of your friends looking you in the eye and saying, something happened to us. And then you say, I don't believe you. I mean, there's something going on here. I couldn't imagine that. But as I was wrestling with Thomas this week, I noticed there's a few ways of thinking that I find really inconsistent or kind of like a dead-end thought. This is a little window into my personal Bible study time is, is if I'm reading the Bible and I see a story where I think instinctively, I know everything about this story, that's a red flag to me. And I just stop and I just clear the slate and just try and figure out what's actually going on here. Because it's not like John... It's one of the last stories that he puts out here in his gospel. He just wants to throw in this random story about a guy who's doubting. Actually, the word doubt only appears in English in like one translation. The word here is 
the opposite of the belief. It's the, the negative version of belief. It's unbelief. And so uh, what is actually going on? Well, I used to think this is bad for somebody to demand that they want to see something for themselves. But then as I was considering this, I thought, that's not how I live my life at all. If I came to you and said, hey, I had this amazing experience at uh, this church, I wouldn't expect you to say, okay, that's good enough for me. I don't need to experience that myself. I don't know. I mean, it, 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 he, he's okay to say, I want to experience this for myself. But I think there's something that's woven into this story here that tells us about belief and that wraps in a lot of things that are happening in the story of John um, and answers a question that some of us might be having, little hanging Chad, um, about how belief works. Notice how many times in this story there's a reference to seeing. <laughs> what does Mary say in 18? I have seen the Lord. Even before that, when, when the disciple whom Jesus loved looked into the tomb, he saw and believed. And we have seen the Lord in verse 25. Jesus says to Thomas, see, look at, see my hands. See that. This is a huge theme woven throughout John about seeing, about being blind. How does, this, how, how does this play into this story? Because John shows us that there is a way of seeing and not seeing. There is a way of, uh, of, of, of demanding something out of God that you want to see that doesn't actually lead to real belief. You see it in chapter 2, after the water to wine, after the temple fiasco. There's a little verse that says, and many people saw the signs that Jesus was doing and believed, but Jesus kept them at arm's distance because he knew what was going on in their hearts. He takes an issue with people who are overemphasizing just seeing something. You see this in, um, you know, in the royal official in Cana, back in Cana, I think it's chapter five, he's going to plead Jesus to, to heal his son. Jesus looks out at the crowd who's gathered and says, you won't believe unless you see something. All of the people who live this, or who display this in the Gospel of John, actually appear blind. He even says in chapter nine, "I have come so that those who see might become blind, and those who are blind can see." Chapter twelve, halfway through, you might remember one very specific statement that said, "Though he had done all of these signs in their very presence, they still wouldn't believe." Why? John is taking an aim at this type of belief that is conditional. A conditional disciple is the number one way to be blind, according to John, when it comes to your relationship with God. If you're sitting out here this morning, you're telling me, Dan, I have no idea what God is doing in this world or in my life. I haven't seen him in a long time. As a matter of fact, I, I feel like I'm a little blind. Well, ask yourself, is the pattern of your following Jesus one of conditions? This is where I read into Thomas a little bit, and you can let the reader understand. This is a nuance that I'm just presenting you with here. What does Thomas say in verse 25? They say, we have seen the Lord. He doesn't say, I want to see the Lord too. I don't think. Okay, maybe it sounds like he says, I don't. I don't believe you until I'm going to see the scar. There's something that I want to see that can be perceived as impersonal here. And until I see that, I'm not going to believe. 
perfect picture in my interpretation of somebody who's gonna, who is following the tradition of being a conditional disciple. What a conditional disciple looks like is somebody who says, I'll believe only if. I said to you this before. Is there a pattern in your life where you'll say, yeah, sure, Jesus, I'll be, I'll be all in. Only if you work this out. I will give to you my finances only if you <laughs> give me the raise. I will uh, be all, all, you know, I'll follow you with my sexuality only if you give me the spouse that I want. I will be all in with my kids only if you make sure they have a good youth pastor or whatever. You make sure that they have uh, the, the, the right leadership in their life. I'll, all this conditional stuff adds up to a big fat no at the end of our life. I will not follow you. The devil wants us to think we're following Jesus, but the reality, we're making him follow us. And the tempting thing in this cycle is to continue to just move the goalposts farther and farther away. After God does something, it's, it's always something else. John does not want to let us go before he has one last swing at this type of thinking. But the question that's hanging at the end of it is, so far, we haven't really seen anybody turn it around who's been stuck in that pattern. I mean, it took the wind out of me when I read that in chapter 12. Though they had seen all of these things, they still did not believe. Um, is it possible to be conditional and then and, and turn away from that? And become a disciple who doesn't just say only if, but even if. Because that's where I want to be. I want to be able to have this relationship with Jesus where I'm able to say, even if, I still believe. Even if, I don't get the raise. Even if things don't look like they make sense. Even if I don't have the plan perfectly figured out. Even if I don't have my act together. I'm still, even if I suffer, even if I experience pain, or even if it's confusing, I'm still gonna be, I'm gonna believe. Because if you believe, there is a promise to having life in him. And the life that he gives us exists in an even if capacity. The life that he gives to your soul is still there even if we experience uh, suffering. And I know there's many people in this church who would testify to that. And I've seen it firsthand. The answer is you can turn around if you're stuck in that place where Thomas was. Thomas did. The statement that he makes, I am moved by, where he says, my Lord and my God. Now the, the reason why I think that this is Thomas, in a, in a way, repenting and believing, and believing through an action here, is because it's not just an arbitrary statement. It's not just a statement that they would make on a regular basis. Let me just give you two examples of how this strikes me. Number one, the, it just seems like he's blurting this out. <laughs> or at least declaring this. Now, if they're still in a locked room situation for some reason, if they're still trying to figure out how is this gonna work moving forward because of the, uh, Jew the Jewish rulers, this is not a sentence you wanna say loud and clear for everybody to hear. We need to be quiet. 
Thomas says loud and proud, my Lord and my God. If somebody heard him say that, especially after they're already crucifying Jesus for blasphemy, this is the end for him. This is an act of faith. And it might be, for some of us, the first step towards redoing our discipleship with Jesus. If you've been stuck in a place of conditional faith, this is the first step towards saying, I'm going to be all in as an only, as a, as a even if disciple. And I'm going to say, my Lord and my God, because discipleship is surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus more and more each day. The second thing I'm struck by, by this phrase of my Lord and my God, is, is when John wrote this letter, it was during the reign of Domitian, one of the most brutal Caesars of the Roman Empire. And he wrote it in a city that was Neochorus to this empire, that was the city, um, the, the capital of his worship. If you know anything about Domitian and Ephesus, it's... He's a really, I mean, there's a 30-foot statue to him. There's a huge temple to him there. And, and Domitian's favorite title for himself was Lord and God. As a matter of fact, I read that when he would pronounce, um, when he would give the green light for someone to be executed, he would say the sentence, this pleases your Lord and God. There's a rumor that I heard, I can't actually find the source for it, that he would have his wife tell him this. I, I only say that to just add to the point for John to write this. It was in their world, in a world where emperor worship was so huge, and in a world where if you didn't jump onto that train, you were going to get killed. This is a very meaningful statement to be put out there. My Lord, my Lord and my God, Jesus I think Thomas turned it around. Church tradition has it that Thomas went farther than anybody else. He died in India. Some have even tried to put him at places in China. It is possible to see Jesus for who he is and, 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 and line up with all of the desperate people in the Gospel of John who don't demand uh, the sign but use the sign to look past that to see who Jesus really is and then receive him as that. So my question is today, do you believe? Does your belief look like putting your trust in, assuming a response or an action to follow? Maybe a good word for that is are you a follower? Have you received the commission to being an agent of forgiveness, an image of Christ in this world. But can you say, even if anything happens to me, I'm going to declare my Lord and my God when I look at the risen Christ. Consider these things as we pray. If there's any of us here, Father, that just need to let go of the nails and the hammer and be a people who articulate your forgiveness, then it, it flood our imaginations with creativity about how to do this and open up our eyes to see opportunities to be your image in our families and in our cities.
Help us to receive the breath of the life-giving spirit in our life to, to show us and lead us in that mission. Specifically, if there's anyone here who just feels called into that, but they're just afraid or they're unable to get out of that locked room, we know there's a difference between having fear and living in fear, and so we just give it to you. And we invite the Prince of Peace into that to speak your word of peace as we build this life of forgiveness. If any of us just are evaluating ourselves and we feel like, yeah, it's been a pretty conditional relationship, I pray your peace into that, that we just open our hands up and say, I'm gonna let go of my conditions. You have proven yourself to be trustworthy time and time again. I'm just gonna trust you with whatever it is. My Lord and my God, amen.